Well, uh, it is great to have you guys here. Thank you. I, we're in um, chapter 20 of the uh, book of Acts, and uh, as you can probably see because I wrote some things up here, we're going to be looking for just a little bit at verse 32, which is really kind of where we left off. Remember what's going on here. Um, this is the end of the third missionary journey, the very end of it, because in the next chapter he will be in Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested, and that's how he's going to ultimately end up in Rome. Much of the rest of the book of Acts, once he gets to Jerusalem, is how he gets to Rome. And uh, a lot of geography, and we'll be dealing with that. But this is uh, this verse where we left off last week deserves a good bit of time. Remember the context. Paul has asked the elders of the Ephesian church to come down to Miletus, which we looked at the map last week. It's just a little bit south along the coast there. Anyway, and uh, I love that section, uh, which we covered last week, because we see how Paul looks at church leadership. And he uses all the key words, uh, uh, presbyteroi, episcopoi, those key words that are often translated elder. And then uh, looks at pastor and calls the church the flock. And this is where we really get the metaphor and imagery of the church as flocks and the pastor, because pastor is from a Latin word, which means shepherd, that kind of thing. And that's just, it's a wonderful, a wonderful passage. And he says, you guys have the responsibility to look out for two things. Again, he's using metaphor, fierce wolves who will come in and attack your flock and then those within the flock were going to twist things. And that would, of course, be referring to heresy. And that's why he says to them then, therefore, in verse 31, be alert. This isn't a responsibility of the flock. This is your responsibility to be alert. And that's a, that's a military term. To, you, know, you, you have that responsibility. Remembering that for three years, I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Um, it's a remarkable verse because it's, it, and it frustrates me because he, he, he dumps so much into just a couple of phrases. And we really have to make sure we don't skip over this quickly. It, it's, it's rich. So he commends them to the Lord and to the word of his grace. And the word would mean God's word, the written word, the revelation of God, which has as its theme grace. And so, I mean, I know this doesn't mean anything to you, but it's a genitive. And so that means it's explaining the nature of the word. The nature of the word is all about grace. And that word, which is all about grace, is able to do two things. Build you up and give you inheritance. Now, when, because those words like inheritance and so on, really are dealing with salvation and so on. So grace, grace is always how God deals with the human race. And when you're talking about the grace of salvation, it has three it has three dimensions to it. Now this is that we have gone over this before, so this is simply just a review. But there is the event of justification. When you put your faith in Christ, there are thirty three things that happen to you, but one of those most important is 
the God who is the judge of the universe declares you righteous. He acquits you, uh, he forgives you, he redeems you, but he justifies you, he declares you righteous. And this is an event in your life. Then you begin the process of sanctification. And so that's what Paul used that word, those who are sanctified. And then he talks about the inheritance to build you up, to encourage you, to edify you, and to bring you along so that you will achieve the inheritance God has for you, and I just drew a line, which is glorification. And this is the final stage, if you will, of, of God's grace in salvation, which is glorification, uh, which, as you know, I think you know because we've talked about that before, is when uh, Christ returns and um, the rapture and all the things that are talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4, we receive our resurrected, glorified body that's explained to us in 1 Corinthians 15. And so to be glorified means this is the final act of God's salvation. This is the final act of his grace and salvation. It's the completion of his salvation. And Paul loves to use this word, inheritance. Why do you think he chooses to use that word, of inher uh, 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 the word inheritance, to speak about the final stage, if you will, the final facet of, of our salvation? It's a gift. It's a gift. Well, you're a member of the family. Yeah. So you're a co-heir yeah. with Christ. Yeah. yeah. Therefore, you're in on the inheritance, and the amount of inheritance you get is yeah. based on the things that you do to glorify God, not the works to justify yourself, but to, the works to who, who inherits an estate normally? Children, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the family. It's, you're in the family. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes uh, people have an estate and they'll give it to you know, some distant uh, neighbor who did good. But for the most part, normally inheritance is a family issue. And so you're in the family of God. You're his child. And as Fred correctly said, you're an heir. Therefore, he's, he's building on that part of that heirship, if you will, of that inheritance of that promise is the final stage of salvation. When you, and remember, we've, we've talked about this frees us from the penalty of sin. This frees us from the power of sin. This frees us from the presence of sin. Because we get a totally new body. It will be impossible for us to sin. So, I mean, it's just, <laughs> Paul's dumping so much into that, those cluster of phrases, but it's, it's rich because it reminds us of his entire message. This is what he preached. This is what he lived. This is what he declared. And he says, you know, I did not cease to admonish you. Now I'm commending you to the Lord that the word of his grace will build you up, and will give you the inheritance for those who are sanctified. I mean, it's just it's a, it's a tremendous reminder of that whole package, I guess that would work, that whole package of salvation that is ours when we put our faith in Christ. And I mean, it's theologically, this, this is the center of our faith, that God's justification, which is his declaration, when we put our faith in Christ, we are freed from the penalty of sin. Jesus paid that penalty. 
sanctification. We are growing, and in that process of dependence on, we're gradually being freed from the power of sin. And then when we get our new bodies, resurrected, glorified bodies, we're freed from the presence of sin. It's gone. It. I, I just cannot... I believe it, I believe it with all my heart, but it is hard to imagine what that's going to be like when it will now be impossible to sin. I'll never have another evil thought. I'll never, ever have another temptation. I'll never, ever go through trial. It's gone. And so and he correctly uses that term, inheritance, because you're in the family of God. This is what he's promised to you. And so it's, um, it's just a wonderful summary. I have, a, I have a thought that God created the, the world. God created Earth, created Eden, and Satan spoiled it. Mm-hmm. And God is only in the process of recreating Eden. And so Absolutely. Eden, Eden and this, what's Absolutely. in the Bible is in between. Absolutely. No, that that's... <laughs> you, could, you could put the... On one side of the timeline, well, let's start over here. One side of the timeline is Eden and all that God created. And the other side of the timeline is the restored Eden, paradise. It's a restored. And, and there is an interesting, there's an interesting thing to note in Revelation 21 and 22. There's a tree. There's a tree. The tree which will heal the nations. This, and there's, it's an interesting, I don't think that's just a coincidence. The... the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree that will nurture and heal and restore the nations. Um, whether that's metaphorical, it's hard to figure that out. It's a, it's a, little, it's a wonderful passage, but it's exactly how do we understand what that's saying. But it's, uh, you know, there's no doubt about that. Are you referring to the tree being the cross now? No. no, no. Well, I mean, you could put the tree in the middle of, of the, you know, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in, in, in Genesis and then you have the tree at the end in Revelation. Yeah, this tree of life, that's what it's called. I, I wanted to get a whole bottle of this off. I have to pull this thing up. And you see, there's, a, there's a, a graphic you see a lot of places in the tree of life. It's a very common. As soon as someone shows it to you, as soon as you see it, you'll, you'll recognize it. Because you'll see it a lot of places. Well, and Eden, Eden was here on Earth, and so why is Christ coming? Making the second coming? Why is he coming back to the new heaven and the new earth? You know, that's got to be the new Eden. That's right. That's that's exactly. And you read that. Um, <clears throat> here's verse one of Re- Revelation twenty. 22. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the land through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of this tree for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. I mean, it's just, it's interesting that the bookends of the scriptures is a tree, and in the middle is another tree. And this tree makes this tree possible. I mean, you know, I don't think we're stretching that too far, but there, there's just an important uh, metaphorical theme there. And I mean, Fred, you are absolutely right. New heaven and new earth is restored Eden. Uh, there's no, I mean, there's no doubt about that. And the same thing that Adam and Eve enjoyed 
before the sin. Uh, the same thing Adam and Eve, you know, walking with the Lord, fellowshipping with the Lord, showing the Lord all that they were doing in the garden and so on is exactly what we will be doing in new heaven, new earth. What was the verse you from Revelation 22, 1, I read really 1 through 3. But it talks about the tree of life. So anyway, I, I, I pulled out of verse 32 some rich truths that are consistent with everything Paul teaches. And that term inheritance and sanctified word, which is his grace, the word which is filled with his grace. So he's now, uh, he, Paul, now is going to conclude in his final words to the Ephesian uh, elders that are now Miletus before he leaves for Jerusalem. I covered no one, coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. That refers to Paul's tent making. He didn't draw on them, didn't depend on them. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Again, we see what he had said earlier when he said to them, I declared to you, I taught you, and I testified to you. We talked about that last week, where he's, I'm a model for how you do it. Here again, he says, I have shown you. He's again, which is not arrogant. It's just, it's, it's part of his responsibility. And that is the responsibility of a leader, to model the things of God. But there's a very interesting point about the end of verse 35. As the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That is not in any one of the four Gospels. which indicates, again, that many, 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 many things Jesus said are not recorded in the four Gospels. John twenty-one twenty-five says, if all of the things Jesus said and did were written in the books, there would not be enough books to contain it all. So it's just interesting that Paul is quoting with authority a statement, it is more blessed to give than to receive, that's not in the four Gospels, but yet it's consistent with everything that is in the four Gospels about what Jesus said. But it's a quotation that is something that either he, he heard Jesus say this, possibly before he came to know the Lord in Damascus, or we don't know. Did Peter tell him that? Did John tell him that? Did James? Because he met with all three of them in Jerusalem a couple of times. It's just an interesting and intriguing thought. Don't want to make too much of it, but it is just a, it, there's no doubt that this is an authoritative teaching of Jesus. But it is not recorded in the four Gospels. All right, now I'm going to conclude this. It's really quick. Are there any questions even going back to last week? Because we spent a lot of time on the organization of the church, which Paul tells us about and then these wonderful words this week. Should I go on? Okay. Well, I just want to real quick, you know, the words could not, the books um, could not contain. That's from John twenty one twenty five. And and how how are we to take that? Because you know, I've I've been to the library in New York City. There's a lot of books there. And you think of all the volumes and everything. Uh, is that a metaphor? Is that a, I mean, 
What is that? How would you address that? Is it hyperbole, exaggerated language? Um, I don't know. It, 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 there's quite a bit of discussion on this. There are several good articles on it in some of the theological journals. The one I find most compelling is if you are talking about Jesus as the God-man, as the God-man, you're not only talking about his 33 years on planet Earth, you're talking about eternity, creation, sustaining all that he's done. You could not write enough books to fully and comprehensively describe everything he's done. That's how I understand that. It's not just his three years of public ministry. It's as the God-man who he is, which is really an intriguing thought. If you want to write a history of God and be comprehensive about it, you, you will not be able to do it because <laughs> you'll always leave something out, uh, which is just a ludicrous assignment. I remember a couple years ago, uh, I, ha I can't remember, it was a British author, I don't remember her name, but she was uh, kind of from a real radically liberal school, but she published a book, and, called, and the title of it was A History of God. And what it really was, in that rather ridiculous title, what it really was, was how through history people have looked at God. Not a history of God. So it was, because I remember when I read, I read a review of it, I think the New York Times book review or somewhere like that, but I thought, well, this is going to be a great review. And it did not disappoint me. All right, let's conclude his words to the uh, Ephesian elders there. This in verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they were weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because the word he had spoken, that he would not see, they would not see his face again, which presumably would be true. I, I doubt that any of them saw Paul again. They will in heaven, but probably not on earth. And they accompanied him to the ship. Chapter 21, then, um, there is a lot, particularly as we go through the first 14 verses, there's just a lot of place names. As, as Luke, who is now with Paul, Luke records their movement from Miletus, which is on the western coast of what today would be Turkey, and get to Caesarea, which is the main port there in, in Israel at that time. So I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to, if you want to follow it on page nine is the map, and I'm going to read it kind of quickly, uh, because other than making a couple of geographical comments, there's one interesting point when they're at Tyre. And when he had parted uh, from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, that's the island there, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria, landed in Tyre, for there the ship had unloaded its cargo. So that tells us he was more than likely on a coasting vessel that was loaded with cargo. A coasting vessel, they always hugged the coast. Because I'm telling you, to travel in the Mediterranean, even today, but back then, in the type, it was dangerous. Any kind of storm that would come up, it was really life-threatening. So they always hugged the coast, and, and presumably that's all Luke's telling us. Now, they're in Tyre, and you can see that again if you're following it on the map. They're in Tyre, and something happens here. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, meaning the disciples who are following Jesus in Tyre. 
We don't know their names, don't know anything about them, but it's just telling us the gospel spread even to this Phoenician city. They know their gospel, their believers there, so they seek them out, and they stay there for seven days. Now listen to this. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on a journey, and they and all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another, and we went on board to the ship, and they returned home. Now wait a minute. We had read earlier in the previous chapter that the Holy Spirit was telling Paul to go to Jerusalem. Now these disciples, these leaders, these church people, these Christians in Tyre are saying, Holy Spirit told us, don't go. Contradiction. Error. We've got a problem, Houston, right? In 1 Corinthians 14, 29, Paul says, test the spirits. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and, uh, 20 and 21, he says, test the spirits. Test prophecies. Test what people say. Is it true? Now, there is absolutely no evidence that Paul took seriously what they said. Because he immediately, <laughs> he departed, we went on the shore, we got on the boat, and we left. We prayed with him, and our kids came along, and we had a party, we shared, you know, cake, and I'm making that up. But it's just, so, I mean, you just get this strong sense that Paul is saying, this is not a prophecy that I'm going to listen to. The Holy Spirit told me to go to Jerusalem. So, so when we have counsel, I think these people might be considered parents, right? Oh, I would, yeah. Good people, absolutely. um, We're still listening to the voice of God, the Holy Spirit, as to how He is directing, even though. We like these people, love these people. We go the way to war. The Lord has us. When Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 14 and in 1 Thess 5, test, test prophecies, examine prophecies, test the spirits, and it's a plural or test the spirits. What do you mean by that? I mean, that's hard. You're, you're, you're almost... You're, you're, you're saying something that has a subjective element to it. Because I'm sure these, these believers in Tyre were absolutely convinced that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. And they got a word from the Lord, don't go, it's dangerous. And Paul says, he, I mean, he doesn't contradict, he doesn't argue, he doesn't, he, just, he doesn't listen, he just keeps going. I can remember, um, this is a long time ago, um, when Peggy and I were in Pennsylvania still, and we... Uh, we, are, we uh, are not able to have our own children. And this was when we were going through a lot of fertility things and uh, uh, trying to get the final word as to whether we really could have children or not. And a dear lady from our church um, came to us one Sunday morning and said, I have a prophecy from God for you. I want to meet with you. I want to tell you what the Lord is telling me. Because this is what you're supposed to do in regards to your infertility. And, uh, I mean, I don't know how you would process something like that, but, uh, I mean, if um, if you know anyone or even maybe your own families or whatever, 
infertility for a young couple is a very difficult thing. It's it's a real struggle. And it's even more intense. I, I th- this isn't a sexist statement. I think it's just the way God makes it. It's even more difficult and intense for the wife. We were both really wrestling with this. And Peggy said, you know, I don't really want to meet with her. I have been studying my Bible. I have been praying with the Lord. We've been working with our pastor. Whether this lady has anything to really contribute or not is problematic. The one thing we do know for sure is she does not speak with the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's really important. A person that has counsel for you, you listen and you take it in with all the other things that you're you're taking in and evaluating as you make decisions. But a human being does not have the authority of Jesus Christ unless they speak from the Bible. And so Paul had directly gotten a word from the Lord. The Holy Spirit told him clearly, directing him, you're going to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you, and so on. And so Paul tested this and said, this is not from the Lord. This is not something I'm going to follow. And so we just decided not to meet with her because of, of just the circumstances we were in. But we didn't know what she was going to say, but to have what she was saying in our minds, working through this difficult time of decision-making. Um, we didn't seek her counsel. We didn't want her counsel. We, she was the kind of person that was well-known for doing that. I have a word for God, oh God from you, uh, for, from God for you. And you say, okay, it sounds wonderful. And yet at the same time, you do know she is not speaking for the Lord. She does not have the same apostolic credentials that Paul does or Peter does. Don't mean to be unkind, but that's part of, I think, how we have to take in and wisely evaluate what people often say. Does that mean you do not seek counsel? No, that's not what it means. You do seek counsel. But uh, we weren't seeking her counsel. We weren't seeking her out. She had that reputation. All right, I guess that's enough. We'll say that's that. Well, we have the two most talented, gifted, good-looking, <laughs> bright kids God's ever created. And one of them has two grandchildren. Yeah, yeah, God's been incredibly gracious to us. When he finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, Mano de Acco, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And next day we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Now remember the seven? That takes you all the way back to chapter 6. When they chose seven Hellenistic Jews to serve with the apostles. Philip was one of them. He was the one that evangelized Samaria. He's the one that met with the Ethiopian eunuch. This is that Philip. And it tells us, we stayed with him, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And that's just, that's, that's it. That's it. And you think, oh, wait a minute, hold it, hold it, hold it. Hold. Tell me more about this, Luke. Four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Are they prophesying in the church at Caesarea? Do they have a role in the church in Caesarea? What does that mean? 
It's frustrating. He doesn't tell us. But it does say something. Here you see an important role for four women who are the daughter of you know, very famous evangelists who had evangelized all of Samaria and so on. So it's just intriguing. Here you see a role for well, Luke loves to do this. He does this over and over and over again, more than any other writer in the New Testament. He focuses on the role of women. He stresses the role of women. And so whatever these gals are doing, whatever exactly that means, it's stated positively. And so some role in Caesarea or in the larger Samaria, we just don't know. So I'm frustrated. It's one of the 9,762 questions I want to ask Paul when I get to heaven. While we were there staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus. Now, again, I don't know how much you remember, but we met him back in chapter 11. He is the one who gave Paul prophecy about going to Jerusalem. Well, here he's going to do it again. He came down and said, he took Paul's belt, bound it, his feet and his hands, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he heard this, we, you know, the we means Luke's in this, and the people urged, they urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I mean, Paul is firmly convinced that the Lord wants him in Jerusalem. And so Agabus is telling him, you're going to Jerusalem. He's not disputing it. He says, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. And he you know, acts it out, ties him in with his belt and so on. You're going to be in prison. You're going to be delivered to Gentiles. And someone's like Paul saying, yeah, I know. I'm willing to die for Jesus down there. So, I mean, this incredible, deep-seated conviction because of what the Lord had told him. He, yeah, I'm ready to die. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> it's the kind of thing that you, every now and then when you study church history, you see someone like that. So determined and convinced and, and of, of what the Lord wanted them to do, even if it involves martyrdom. You've, I mean, you're all familiar with Jim Elliott and, and you know, in the late 1950s and so on. And he said, I'm, this is a statement when he was at Wheaton, he had kept a journal and his wife, Elizabeth, published it later. And one of his, I love this statement. He said, I'm immortal until God's done with me. That's not audacious. That's true. I'm immortal until God's done with me. Now, maybe when I'm 29 years old, he's going to be done with me, which he was. That's when he was killed. By the Wari Indians, sometimes called the Arca Indians. Didn't he say uh, he is no fool to give that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot that's, a, that's another one of his quotes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's that same kind of just determination and fortitude and perseverance. This is what the Lord wants me to do, and I'll pay any price, whatever it is he wants me to do. So it's just, this is an extraordinary insight into Paul, um, and, and so he concludes, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, okay, let the will of the Lord be done. This is the group saying it. Okay, will the Lord be done? And those days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we would lodge. So we don't know anything about this man. 
but he is from Cyprus and he will stay with him. It's The year is A.D. 57. We are at the end of the third missionary journey. It's now over. He's in Jerusalem. A.D. 57. A.D. 57. 57. All right, now, um, Paul is in Jerusalem, and what happens next, we have to follow this very, very carefully, because uh, the leadership of the Jerusalem church they're Jews, and the leader of the Jerusalem, singular, the leader of the Jerusalem church is James. This is James who will write the epistle. Brother of Jesus. Yes, brother of Jesus. So he's the leader. So as we read, we begin reading now in verse 17, remember, he's in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem church is almost, almost 100% Jewish. And the leader is James. So, I mean, this is the mother church. This is where it all started. When we come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. That again, that's extraordinary. Don't miss that. When Luke says all the elders were present, that's telling us that the Jerusalem church is now organized. It's got a structure. It's got leaders. And so, I mean, that, that's all Luke is telling us. And so I, I just find that really something. I mean, remember, I mean, this is AD 57, so it's about 20, oh, 25, 24 years after Pentecost. And, and so, I mean, that's a pretty long time in some ways. But the church is now really organized. But, oh, please. Yeah. So the organization structure, how they were brought forward as elders, is that going way back in the early Acts? I mean, if Paul talks about the being an elder and what the qualifications of an elder are. And that's more towards the Gentiles, correct? What, did James have different, different well, yeah, that, that That's a great question. And I don't know if we have an, enough information from the scriptures to make, um, make reach a conclusion whether there is a distinction between how the Jewish early Jewish church organized its local body and how the Gentile church, which Paul writes about in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. My sense, though, Glenn, is that the, 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 um, uh, the synagogue, the synagogue had elders. And so all they're probably doing, I, and I, what I mean is leaders, elderly leaders. And, and so probably they're just making that very smooth transition into that's how they're organizing the Jerusalem church. As there were elders in our synagogue, now there's elders. Whether that is exactly the same with exactly the same structure that Paul talks about is problematic and maybe even doubtful. Now, where was Peter in this period of time? That's it. We do not know. We, one thing we know is Peter's not here. Peter is not in Jerusalem at this time. When we stay first and second Peter, he also covers some of characteristics of he does. He does. No, it's not as detailed as Paul's really detailed. But, but yeah, that's right. You know, absolutely. We do not know where Peter is. The, the sense is, and there's just there's extra biblical stuff about he's traveling, he's in um, uh, Macedonia, in what today would be like um, Bosnia and right. Serbia. I mean, he's in that area, what they call Illyricum. We know he was there, but whether, where he is, and it's very, very difficult to put a timeline of Peter's life until he's in Rome in AD 68. 
It's, we just don't know. We don't have enough evidence. The general consensus, they just brought the Jewish methods and culture over into... I, I Particularly, I mean, you know, Jesus is on a side and so on, but particularly that organization. It's the elders, uh, rather, as the synagogues had elders, leaders, elderly. They just brought that over naturally into how they organized the church. And that's that would make sense, uh, really, and that's probably why that term elder, presbuteri or episkopoi, which are the Greek words for it, there's a real parallel between that and what the early synagogues were organ how they were organized. Different responsibilities, though. Okay, now he's in Jerusalem, James and the elders in the church, and he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. This is Paul. And when they heard this, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands, this is really something, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Not dozens, not hundreds, but thousands. And that's a fantastic Summary of how the gospel has penetrated first century Jewish society. Thousands are now following Jesus. But we also see, as they start to talk to Paul, the growing cleavage between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Because what's the next sentence? They are all zealous for the law. So that break, that break, it's like I just read an article, I got my copy of Christianity Today yesterday, and there was an article in, 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 the, in the magazine on the Messianic Jewish uh, divisions in America today. And it's, and it's all over how much of the Jewish traditional law do we observe. And there's one group that's saying, we, that's our identity. That's who we are. We want to observe as much of it as we can. Not with the same legalistic mindset that the Pharisees had, but this is, not, this is our heritage. This is who we are. That's tradition. What's that? Tradition. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, Tevye. But it's just, it's, it's fascinating that's still here. 2,000 years later, I mean, you still, you have this, this, this thousands of years of tradition that's defined who they are and their uniqueness and so on. They come to a point where they understand Jesus is the Messiah, but I don't want to break with all this. And so the zeal is still there. And so this is, this is a problem, and it's a problem for Paul because some of these zealous Jews who've come to understand Jesus is the Messiah don't like Paul. Now look at what this says. And they have been told about you. Now, what follows are lies. They're, they're lies that the non-Jewish Christians have been telling them. That what you teach, you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That word forsake is apostasion. To apostatize Moses to defect from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. So James and the elders of the church 
I've heard Paul's summary of his ministry. Fantastic, praise the Lord. Then Paul, thousands of Jews have come to know Jesus. But they remain zealous for the law. And they are hearing all of these stories about you. They're all lies. Paul did not teach that. And so they say, Paul, we got a problem. Verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you come. Do therefore what we tell you. We, we, we want you to be sensitive to this. So Paul, here's some counsel. We have four, I'm in the middle of verse 23. We have four men who are under a vow. The vow is probably the Nazarite vow. Do you, are you familiar with that? It, 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 to find it in the Old Testament, you would go back to number six. But it was a vow that a Jewish, devout Jewish man would take. You don't drink any alcoholic beverages. You don't touch anything that's unclean. And you don't get your hair cut for a period of time. So presumably that's the vow they've taken. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses, meaning pay for the offering that they have to offer, so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. That's interesting, isn't it? I didn't know CNN was working back then. <laughs> so, I mean, you have this... They're trying to think, Paul, your presence and all these lies are going to create some real problems here. It, it, it could potentially create quite a disturbance. So, Paul, we want you to neutralize this. Do you remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 9... Paul would say this, to the Jew, I'm a Jew, to the Greek, I'm a Greek, to the weak, I'm weak, to the strong, I become all things to all men that I might win some. So is Paul willing to defer to this sentiment to be able to preach the gospel further in Jerusalem? What's he going to do? He's going to do it. I am willing to do this. Now, they give him in verse 25 a, a summary of the Gentiles. But as for the Gentiles who believed, we sent them a letter with our judgment. They abstained from sacrificed idols and all that. That's just the letter of Acts 15 that we studied. It's, that's all it's referring to. Okay, here's what Paul does. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them, that which that would be in the mikvot pools where they're cleansing and purifying themselves. They went into the temple, Gave, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. The offering, according to Numbers 6, was a lamb and a cereal and drink offering. So that's what they did. They're in Jerusalem on Temple Mount in the temple. So the, the end of their vow is over. They're purifying themselves. And Paul pays for the cost of those offerings. To the Jew, I become a Jew. I become all things to all men that I might win some. 
I'm willing to flex with this. If these leaders of the Jerusalem church believe this will neutralize the concern, I will do it. And so he does it. When seven days were complete, meaning the end of the purification, that why, why did he pitch like? Well, why did he do that? When you look at how he called Peter out in Galatians. But Peter was willfully and defiantly choosing not to eat with the Gentiles in the Antiochian church, which was largely a Gentile church. That's not what Paul's doing here. Okay. To try to to try to def, to try to deflect what could have been a major issue based on these lies about him, he says, look, all, I'm, willing, I'm willing to do this if you think this will neutralize the concern of these zealous Jews. It's okay with me. I'll do it. Not a matter of salvation. Not a matter of justification. I'll do this. And so, you, I mean, it's, again, the, to me, the grid through which you must think about this is 1 Corinthians 9. What are you willing to do this isn't an issue of salvation. You know, this isn't an issue. This is how you get saved. That's not what he's talking about. It's just, it's a simple, am I willing to do this to neutralize the potential, even chaos it could resolve? Yeah, I am. Because it really doesn't matter. This doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. It doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Uh, I'll do this. If it can neutralize these zealous Jews who've recently come to understand who Jesus is, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. Would he do this because he was uh, well-known uh, among many areas? Uh, this Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. And that on this hinge might turn the uh, doubt and concern or of others to, to make others confused and therefore create some kind of a chasm of this group and, and other groups and it might have ripple effects throughout. If you do well, there's a lot of things there you're saying connected, but I think so. I mean, he's... Is it... Will it be helpful for me to neutralize this for the larger picture? of keeping peace in the church in Jerusalem, not creating unnecessary divisions. Um, yeah, because they're saying to me, if they see, if they see that those traditions are still important to you. Did Paul take a Nazarite vow on his second missionary journey? He did, because yeah, he, he goes down to Sancria to get a haircut. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit south of <clears throat> Corinth. So he kept the vow. Why? And I mean, you just think, why did he do that? But I mean, I don't know. He does, it's one of those frustrating things. He just doesn't tell us. But it's just so, it's, that's why I, when I finished reading that article in Christianity Today that I got yesterday, it was just helpful for me to see, I have to keep looking at this issue within the Messianic Jewish community that's dividing them and creating as an issue is, that's over things that are probably not as important as some are making them. Yeah. If a Jewish person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, understands he's the Messiah, and their entire heritage and everything about their life has been Jewish, but now they're freed from 
is it okay for them to still observe some of those traditions and still acknowledge some of that? Because all of that points to Jesus anyway. So, I mean, I personally, I don't get that upset about that. If they really know, know it. I, have a, I have a friend who says, do you come, he's got to cut ties with everything. He can no longer do any of that stuff. And I say, where are you getting that from the Bible? Well, Paul says, and I keep referring to some of the things Paul did. And here's one of them. What's Paul saying? My liberty and freedom in Christ is. So I know who I am. I know what the gospel message is. I'm willing to do all things to all men so that I might win some. And this is a, this is a non-salvation issue. I had a similar vow, which I had taken a couple years ago in the second missionary, well, it would be like seven years ago, in the second missionary journey, and I got my hair cut in Korea. It was a ceremony, I'm sure. So, yeah, I'll do this, sure. I'll even pray for the, uh, for, for the lambs. That's what he's doing. And the intent was that will neutralize the concern of these zealous Jews who now know the Lord so that you don't create a division. Because that's an unnecessary division. There's enough hostility in Jerusalem. Let's not divide the church. So that's what he's doing. It's really an amazing... Paul knew when to do something like this because there's going to be another situation where Titus... um, He'll just refuse to have Titus circumcised. No, I'm not going to circumcise him. No, I know why you want me to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. I mean, well, now, wait a minute. You did this here? Why don't you do this here? It's because of what these guys want for this. What they want for this. He said, No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to circumcise it. All right. Uh, where am I? 27. Okay, 27. When the seven days were completed, meaning the end, end of the purification, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, laid hands on him. Now, the Jews from Asia, these are not the Jews in Jerusalem. These are not the Jews who had come to know Christ. These are the ones from Rome. These. These seem to be the people that she following him around and creating problems for him. But Luke doesn't explain it. just says Jews from Asia. So these are not the Jews of Jerusalem. These are not the ones who have recently come to know Christ. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so they're, they're crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man! Can you hear him yelling this? This is the man who's teaching. And everywhere, everyone against the people, against the law, against this place. What's this place mean? The temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. That's not true. He did not do that. So, I mean, these guys now are trying to, what the, the, the Jerusalem elders wanted to avoid, these Jewish fanatics, that's maybe not a nice way to put it, but they are, they're going to create this, they're going to stir it up. And they do. So they level these charges. And now they try to explain, verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. He had not. Trophimus is one of the Christians from the Ephesian church that traveled with Paul. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut not the gates of the city, the gates into the court of the temple. That's what that means. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came of the tribune, of the cohort, that in all Jerusalem, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now, um, I have this on 
PowerPoint slides, but I don't have the advantage of doing that here. So I don't think it's really important to understand this. Okay, here's, I'm going to make it a rectangle. It's not a perfect rectangle. It's very oblong, but I'll make it a perfect rectangle. All right, here's the temple. Okay, and here's the court where they were. Right here, um, this is um, called, trying to make this short here, kind of getting out of time. This is what is called the Antonia Fortress. The ruins of it, you can see if you ever go to Jerusalem. I take people, there's a church, we go down under the church and you see the basement of this building. This was, it had four towers to it. This was where the Roman legions would stay. This is where the Tribune was. And these towers, they would be watching Temple Mount. Okay? So the Tribune, the Tribune who hears and sees Jerusalem is in confusion. Why, why did they have Roman soldiers here all the time? 24-7 a Roman soldier. Because this is the most volatile point of Jerusalem. And if there's chaos or confusion, the Roman army would stop it. And so now there's chaos and confusion. They've seized Paul, they're screaming at him, they want to kill him, and the Roman tribune, who's in charge of this cohort of, of, of soldiers, Roman soldiers, he at once took soldiers and centurions, a centurion is in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers, and ran down to them. What does that mean, ran down? From the fortress, they're running right into Temple Mount. So this isn't a short distance. This is... This is it's just the one thing Rome couldn't stand was riots and confusion in Jerusalem. So they ready to clamp down on it. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up, arrested him, the hymn is Paul, ordered him to be bound with two chains. Now, presumably, that means a chain that will go around his arm or his leg or his arm and his leg chained to one Roman soldier, and a chain around an arm, leg, or perhaps arm and leg, chained to another soldier. That's what it means. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and he could not learn the facts, so he ordered him to be brought into the barracks, which would be the basement of the Antonio Fortress. By the way, Jesus would have been in the basement when Pilate, he had two trials in front of Pilate. So, he's in the Antonian Fortress. <clears throat> and when he had come to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying away with him. I mean, this is a mess. So, as the text just said, they even picked Paul up and carry him, probably the soldiers to whom he's chained. Isn't this exciting? And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he... That is, Paul said to the tribune, may I say something to you? <laughs> and he, meaning the Roman tribune, said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Now that's, this tribune is making an assumption. He's thinking of what happened in A.D. 54 when an Egyptian Jew organized a group of assassins, they're called Sakari, and were killing Roman soldiers. Are you that guy? I thought we'd done away with you. I thought we'd taken care of you. 
And Paul says, no, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. And that's right. We talked about that before. Tarsus was a major university town, a very important city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, remember, he's on Antonia Fortress. It's elevated. The people are all in the court. I want to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when they were a great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew. Now, if you want to find out what he said, come back next week. So, I mean, this is, this is an incredible situation. And you can just see the hand of God providentially all over this. So now Paul, and this is this chapter 22, is basically his address to these people. But the Roman tribune, with the authority of the Roman Empire, has calmed it down, and now Paul is going to be able to speak to them. That is amazing. And so uh, it, it's what happens here, and this is what's going to eventually cause Paul to be arrested, and um, he's going to be beaten, but then he's going to say, I'm a Roman citizen. They're going to take him to Caesarea, and in Caesarea, where he's on the verge of being killed, he will say, I appeal to Caesar. I'm a Roman citizen. And due process codified rights of a Roman citizen where you could have a personal appeal to Caesar. It's tremendous. It's very high drama. It really is what's going on here. And the language that Luke uses really, I think, accurately tries to capture it. So I tried to add some inflection. I hope it was all right. Okay, so next week we'll deal with Paul's address. I'm going to pray, and hopefully the guys won't be so scared of the weather and they'll come back next week, for goodness sakes. It's like summer outside. You easily could have come to class. But they, they're accountable to the Lord, not to us. Isn't that terrible? I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. Father, we had a small group today, and we are thankful nonetheless. We had a great time. This is a rich passage. Thank you for that, um, what I think is one of the most succinct, almost pithy summaries of the richness of grace that produces justification, sanctification, and ultimate glorification. That's our inheritance. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesian elders is that God would just confirm all of those grand truths. And that's important for us. This is what keeps us going. This gives us that eternal perspective. You promised Jesus to come back for us, and when you do, we will receive this inheritance, a glorified, resurrected body, where now not only has the power of sin, uh, the penalty of sin been paid, the power of sin been broken, but the presence of sin will be removed forever and ever and ever in our lives. What a glorious thought. That's a promise you've made to us, and that keeps us going. That's part of the hope that we have. Encourage us, strengthen us as we go our separate ways now with your blessing. We want to represent you well. Help us to do that in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.